If you've not been with us, uh, we have been walking through the book of Hebrews and are nearing the end. As I explained last week, much of the final portion of the book gives instructions about how we can be a better uh, church family, how we can function better as a church family. So we're spending three weeks covering nine principles on that subject. I know I said there would be 12 principles last week, but this is me admitting I was wrong. (laughs) So last week we covered the first three principles for a better family taken from chapter 12 verses 14 through 17. This week and next week we'll cover the other six principles found in chapter 13. And those following along in their Bibles may ask, what about verses 18 through 29 of chapter 12? Well, in my opinion, these verses are the real finale of the book and contained within them is also a bit of a summary of Hebrews. And so um, we're going to save that section for the end of the series. Today we'll continue our discussion of how to have a better spiritual family in the church by looking ahead to chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. Let's remember the big picture for a minute. The book of Hebrews is all about this better way to know God, which is ours in Christ. As we have discussed, the new covenant is simply better than the old covenant. As a part of this new deal, we gain a better family, wherein God is our father, Christ is our brother, and we are adopted children of God. Brothers and sisters, by grace, through faith, in God, through Christ. Just as Jesus made a better way for us to know God, so he gave us a better family. This family is also known as the church. Beyond this overarching truth, the writer of Hebrews gives us instructions here at the end of his letter on how to be a better and better church family because most of this betterness uh, is not automatically obtained. You know, uh, it's an interesting thing. Often with God, that which is available is not automatic. Something to remember. As mentioned, we're going to draw out nine principles, and last week we covered the first three. Let's quickly review those from last week. First, for a better family, pursue peace. We talked about the fact that all of us should go to great lengths to pursue peace in the church. So make sure our church family is unified and a peaceful family. This is the responsibility of the pastor. Wait, no, that's not what I said, is it? This is the responsibility of every single church member. We all ought to be pursuing peace in the family. Second, from last week, for a better family, receive grace. Got that out of verse 15. And the idea here is that unless you fully understand and embrace the grace of God for yourself, you will not have grace to give others in the family. Specifically, We must guard against allowing a root of bitterness to develop through legalistic, judgmental, or better-than-others thinking. We must truly receive grace and understand what we have received in order to have it and to be ready to give it to others. Third from last time, for a better family, walk by faith. We learn from the story of Jacob and Esau that faith is the key to following God together. If some of us live by faith in the unseen, while others are mostly about temporary earthly things, we will not be a strong, united family. But if we walk by faith together, we can be strong. Now, let's get into our text for this week from which we'll find three more principles for how we can be a better family at Go Church. From chapter 13, starting with verse 1, the Word of God says this, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, 
For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. So, let's unpack this. From verse 1, our fourth principle is this. For a better family, continue in love. Look at the verse. Let love of the brethren continue. Folks, that may be a short verse, but nothing is more important than love in God's family. The case can easily be made that the Bible elevates love above all else. Not sure you believe that? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, states plainly that love is even greater than faith and greater than hope. So how important is love, do you think? The Apostle John went so far as to say that our best witness to a lost world is the love we have for each other in the church. Why? Because lost people take notice when there is love, and they can see if we really have love to offer or not. For these and many other reasons, when it comes to our spiritual family, nothing is more important than love. But really, in Christ's family, love should be automatic, right? No, I don't really think so. I don't really think so. If love, even in the church, had an automatic nature about it, what would be the point of our text today? Let love of the brethren continue. This is a command, an imperative, something to work toward. This is a, um, a condition to be implemented, an action that we must choose to do and keep doing. This is a directive for the church, one of the main tasks we are to be about, continuing in our love for the brethren, our love for each other in the church family is our responsibility. Remember God's vision for our church, which, of course, is taken straight from the Bible. There it is. The big picture phrases, if you look outside the circle for a second, start at 12 o'clock and go clockwise, if you look at those big phrases, you see love, love God, right? Loving God, loving each other. And loving everyone. Um, those phrases are, are the big picture of what we're trying to do here. And while those words may not seem very profound, if we could ever achieve them, the results would be revolutionary. Notice the flow. It starts with loving God. And that's where worship comes in, if you look in the circle. Worship. It starts with loving God. And then there's loving each other at the bottom there. And that includes sharing as well as discipling. And then you go on around and you see loving everyone, which we do through blessing our community and what we call missioneering. I don't have time to unpack all that today, but understand that each part of this flows from the previous. And notice that loving each other is right in the middle of the flow. In many ways, loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ is the linchpin of God's vision for our church. And make no mistake, no part of God's vision for us is more often repeated in the Bible than this very part, love one another in the church. Many of you know there are basically three Greek words for love used in the Bible. It's overemphasized, to be honest with you. They all uh, can overlap. They do have slightly different meanings. Often we love about, uh, we talk about uh, the word agape, 
um, which sort of means self-sacrificing love. But here in Hebrews 13, the word being used is Philadelphia, which is a compound word making use of phileo, which already means brotherly love. Uh, but then adelphos, which is the Greek word for brother, is sort of redundantly added. And so it's almost like there's a double emphasis on the fact that we are talking about a special kind of brotherly love here. Unfortunately, the concept of brotherly love doesn't seem to mean a whole lot to most people anymore. It's almost like people don't know what to do with this brotherly or sisterly kind of love. When it comes to our culture and the world, we have a real mess in this area, you know? I mean, can two young ladies have intense sisterly love for each other and that not mean anything romantic or potentially sexual? In our culture, you'd be encouraged uh, at the point of intense sisterly love to engage in something romantic or even to experiment, wouldn't you? And men, uh, we're afraid to hug each other at this point. Right? I mean, everything is so weird now that most men would be afraid to have a love like David had for Jonathan in the Bible. Did you know that people today can't even read that story without interpreting it as being homosexually driven? Which, of course, is only evidence that their own mind is perverted. But the point is that all of this affects us all. We live in this world. It affects us. Regardless, for other reasons, even in the church, we've been guilty of downgrading the idea of phileo or brotherly love. We just don't think it's all that important, it seems. Compared to the supposed king of all loves, agape love, or that other one that's important for your marriage, eros, what is left for little old phileo love? You know what I mean? Even in the church, it seems like Philadelphia has been deprioritized. Has love for the brethren grown cold, as one prophecy predicted? Think about it. Those of you who have been in church forever and heard a million sermons and Bible lessons, which kind of love is portrayed as least important? Which, which is least important in your mind? I bet if you're honest, it might be the one that means brotherly love. Sometimes I've heard Bible teachers communicate that agape love is the word for Christ-like love, as if when one of the other words is used in Scripture, it's somehow less meaningful. Uh, or less godly, but that is completely wrong, folks. This word, Philadelphia, is meant to communicate a love that is equally as potent as agape, only this one is exclusive to the spiritual family of God, also known as the church, also known as the brethren. That's just a biblical term that means church. Let me say that again. As this word is meant by the inspired authors of Scripture, Philadelphia, or brotherly love, is exclusive to the church family. And you say, wait a minute, what about my actual brothers and sisters? Okay, that's a great kind of love too, but that's really not what this is about right here in the Scripture we're studying today. And you say, what about close friends that maybe aren't even part of the family of God? Absolutely, love them. Love them. But again, that's not what this is about. This is about love for the brethren, which is simply another way to refer to love for the church family. 
This is a special kind of love that is exclusive to the church. Maybe part of why we miss the mark on this kind of love is that we don't understand that something special, we're going for something special up in here, okay? Let me be clear that it is not possible to have this kind of love outside of the family of God. The New Testament author is meant to speak of a love that can only be experienced between those who share the Holy Spirit, those who have become adopted children in the spiritual family of God. This ultra-special kind of love can be shared, can only be shared within the brethren, which of course includes the cistern. <laughs> and hey, by the way, if I haven't said it recently, I love you guys. One of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite movies. I love you guys. Anybody know? Probably in several movies, I don't know, but the one I'm thinking of? Come on. Hoosiers. Coach says it to the, the team huddled around right before they go out and win it all. I love you guys. But why? Can only those in the family of God share this kind of love? Because this kind of love comes from the Father. And only those in Christ are connected to Him. Only those whose mutual Father is God can share in this kind of brotherly love. By definition. And so we dare not think this is some lesser word for love, but rather... The writer of Hebrews is saying, let this extra special and unique kind of love continue. Let love of the brethren continue because this kind of love can change the world. But if it's exclusive to the church family, how could this love change the world? Oh, that's the genius of God's plan. Nothing is more attractional than love. When the world sees displayed what we have that they don't have, that's when the church will once again reach the nations, not before. Now, notice the word continue in our text. Let love of the brethren continue. As I've already pointed out, this helps us see that love is not automatic in the church. But I think there's another reason that the word continue is used here, and it has to do with a verse before. If you happen to have your Bible open or your Bible app, you can look back at the previous verse, the last verse in chapter 12, which says, for our God is a consuming fire. And if you were to look back even a little bit further, you would see that the discussion has been about the things that will remain for eternity versus those things that will be burned up and disappear. The point is that love of the brethren is an eternal endeavor. Love of the brethren is one of those things that will not be burned up at the end, but will be carried forward into eternity. What we do in this area becomes an investment, a head start, if you will, on our earthly, or I'm sorry, heavenly returns. The spiritual family of God is to be about eternal things. Those that will not be burned up in the fire that will test every man's work at, at the end. Brotherly love is of the nature to endure the refiner's fire my friends, can you believe it? Can you believe 
that your efforts to love others in your church family will bear eternal fruit? Brotherly love has great value because we know that it will continue. It will endure. So let it continue, even now. The Apostle Paul also shows us this truth in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, where he writes, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It endures. God's kind of love endures. And a few verses later, we're told that God's kind of love will never fail. Add to the mix our text for today, and we can see that brotherly love in the church family will endure even through God's consuming fire, a fire that will wipe all evil from this world in the end. The brotherly love that we have for each other in the church will continue. It will last forever. Earlier I stated that love in the church family, the special brotherly kind of love, comes only from our spiritual father, God. How do I know that? Well, the apostle John tells us, 1 John 4, Starting verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 16, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. For the record, this verse uses the word agape in the Greek and different forms of it. But the context is about brotherly love in the church family. So while there's overlap in the different words, let me go a different direction with this. The fact is that there are some forms of love that occur without God's supernatural involvement. I mean, we're not saying that parents who don't know God through Christ have no love to give their children, right? No, we, we are not saying that because that would be ridiculous. So then what does this mean about love only coming from God and love being a sure sign that a person has been born of God, which means saved. Notice the first word in the passage, beloved. This word not only identifies the audience, but it also qualifies the kind of love we are talking about. Beloved. Here's yet another term for the church, as is family. The word beloved means you who are loved by God with a very exclusive, sacrificial kind of love. And so verse 7 could be paraphrased like this. You who are especially loved by God, love each other because this special love you have can only come from God. And when you love each other with that love, it shows that you really do have His love within you. Now think about this, if the brotherly love or the love we have to give each other in the church is from God, how much of it is there to give? Maybe you look at someone down the row and you're thinking, it's just not that much love there. I, I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not getting it. I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I, don't, I just don't know if I have that much love for this person down the row here. Okay, maybe you feel like you're just being real. But if that person is a believer, you're wrong in your expectations. There is unlimited love there. You have the love of God for that person. If you know God through Christ, His love is unlimited. The only question is whether or not God's love is being kept inside you or being let out. I want to tell you about shaving cream today. And to tell you about this shaving cream, I need to get it out of the can so you can see it with your own eyes. 
So I have a glass here. It's about the same size as a can of shaving cream. <clears throat> and so that means it should be able to, to fit in the glass because, I mean, this says it's seven ounces. Seven ounces. Don't get nervous. <laughs> this is a, about a 10-ounce glass, so it should fit, right? Seven ounces, 10 ounces. Well, anyway, I'm going to show you, show you what the shaving cream is like so you can get an idea. Because it has to come out for you to really see it, right? Okay, so I'm just going to start filling up this glass, and obviously it's, gonna, it's not going to keep going past the point of the glass because, as I said, it has seven ounces in it. But the thing about this shaving cream is, it's, one, it's my favorite kind. I don't know if you uh, have ever, you know, shopped for shaving cream, but the kinds that they have these days, oh my gosh. I, uh, wow, that just stays right there. <laughs> now what? That's pretty impressive. I was probably maybe a third of the can at most, I'd say. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, you don't want that gel stuff, man. Some things were used to be better, you know? All right. How many of you think I really wanted to talk about shaving cream? No, here's the thing I really wanted to talk about, which is not shaving cream, but love. And more specifically, the love of God. The love of God resides inside each member of his family. The love of God resides inside each member of his family. That's a fact. God's love is inside us. Just think about that. The love of God is inside you and me. Do you think the love in God, of God inside us can be measured by looking at us? I hope not, right? Or do you think God's love inside us is a lot bigger than we are? So what happens if God's love stays bottled up inside us? It looks like about seven ounces, right? If we keep it inside, God's love never reaches its potential, and plus, people can't see it. They can't see how huge it is. But when we let God's love out, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It grows. It expands. It overflows. It gets all over everything. It's coming out on your shoes. You know, it becomes something that cannot be contained. In fact, God's love is an inexhaustible resource. Therefore, let love of the brethren continue. I could talk about this all day, but let's move on to the second verse, which says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I'm drawing from this verse, the fifth principle is this, for a better family, open doors to strangers. 
for a better family, open doors to strangers. Now, before I get into what this means for us, let's not miss the connection between these two verses. I mentioned that the Apostle John told us that unbelievers will know we are followers of Christ. They will see the witness about Jesus by our love for each other in the church family. We can also see that truth in, this, in the connection between these two verses here in t- today's text. Why do we go straight from brotherly love to hospitality towards strangers? I believe it is because overflowing love for the brethren will always draw strangers through our doors. Some say verse 2 is about taking in itinerant preachers, opening up your home to traveling Christians, this type of thing. And I know where they get that, but I just don't buy it. I just don't. I think the author's main goal here in verse 2 is to remind his audience that love for the brethren must overflow into love for those who are not yet part of the brethren. I mean, if we're talking about strangers, how will we even know if they're brethren or not? I think the point is that when love for the brethren continues, we are going to find ourselves and our church very attractive to strangers. And when they come, the doors ought to be open. While some of those who come may be other believers wanting to get in on what God is doing, I really think the idea of showing hospitality to strangers has something to do with reaching out to the lost and inviting them to join the party. First, we have to have a party, right? That was point one. That's to be a party. Understand? But then we need to invite the strangers. Now, I do not agree with Rick Warren on everything, but I do like what he says about this principle. He says, God blesses churches that are unified. At Saddleback Church, every member signs a covenant that includes a promise to protect the unity of our fellowship. As a result, the church has never had a conflict that split the fellowship. Just as important because it is a loving, unified fellowship, a lot of people want to be a part of it. In the past seven years, the church has baptized over 9,100 new believers. This was a while back. It's a lot more now. He continues, when God has a a bunch of baby believers he wants to deliver, he looks for the warmest incubator church he can find. What are you doing personally to make your church family more warm and loving? You might sometimes feel guilty for not doing evangelism better. I do. Well, here's one thing you can do that has to do with evangelism. You can make this a loving place. Regardless of your opinion of him, Pastor Rick's thinking demonstrates a principle of our text. When we get the love of the brethren part right, we'd better get ready for the strangers who are going to want in on the deal. And we need to make sure our doors stay open. Even as we get closer and closer to each other, this can apply to our go groups or any other type of smaller group as well. Keep those doors open. Now, where, where am I getting the open doors idea? It doesn't say anything about open doors directly in the text. Well, both from the phrase hospitality to strangers and the context of the verse, which harkens back to several stories in the Old Testament. The author is referring to real examples of folks opening up their homes to angels without realizing it. For instance, there's Abraham at his home and a lot at his home and Manoah, the father of Samson, It is. And in each of these cases and others, you see someone opening up his home, providing food and shelter, and generally caring for strangers who turn out to be angels in disguise. The word hospitality carries with it the idea of an open home, of taking people in, of doing good from within your personal space. Hospitality is an act of kindness. Remembering the context, which is that you are potentially entertaining angels in your home, the idea really is about keeping an open door in case someone coming out into your space might be more important than you thought. And, of course, they are very important, whoever they are. Every individual is more important to God than we can imagine. 
Now, does this open door idea mean you need to turn your house into a homeless shelter or that we should never protect ourselves or some other extreme? No. And I don't have time to get into the exceptions or the appropriate boundaries today, but what we are talking about here is a hospitable attitude and open-mindedness that will impact the way you as individuals and we as a church treat strangers of all kinds. Most importantly, we need to make sure that the doors of our hearts are open. Here's a sound bite for you. As a church, we ought to do everything we can to turn strangers into family. Of course, I'm talking about the family of God. We must take verse 2 in light of verse 1. The author goes straight from brotherly love to hospitality for strangers. That's not a coincidence. So the hidden danger of increased, increased brotherly love in the church is closed doors. The danger is winding up with an atmosphere that is more like a club than a missional community. The danger is that strangers will stay strangers. Remember the last part of our vision statement? The last part, the last phrase, loving everyone. That's where hospitality to strangers comes in. That's where being a blessing, living on, living on mission uh, comes in. And without loving everyone, loving each other will not make us the church Jesus had in mind. Brotherly love must lead to hospitality for strangers or else something good will become something bad. We want to be a river, not a cow pond. We need the love that flows in to also flow out. Let's think through how this works in our church. First, realize that we probably cannot share brotherly love of the type we're talking about with 200 different people. And that's about how many call this church home now. So what happens is we group up. And that's by design. Otherwise, we would become a spectator's event. And that's not church. So instead, we, we provide smaller group opportunities where brotherly love really has a chance to flow at another level. We have go groups and men's and women's groups and age-based ministries and ministry teams. And through all of that, we tend to find people we can relate to either by affinity or preference or stages of life or whatever else. We find friends and we get closer. Not only is there nothing wrong with that, but it needs to happen if love for the brethren is going to develop and continue as it should. That said, if we are not careful... What happens when strangers try to connect? They are ignored. Our needs are met. We got the love going. And so they see closed doors everywhere they look in the church because everyone else is already content with their smaller group of brothers and sisters, and that is not at all the kind of family God wants us to have. So how do we combat this natural tendency to close ourselves off? Well, let me give you a little tool that's as biblical as it is crazy. And here it is. Maybe it would help to think to yourself, you know, that guy over there might just be an angel. <laughs> okay, wait, is that really possible? Yeah, it is. Don't be so quick to discount the second half of verse 2, oh, my pragmatic friend. Just admit it. That's what you were doing. You didn't take it seriously did you? But the author is very serious. He presents this literally. He assumes his audience, those who really believe the Old Testament stories, will actually be motivated to show hospitality to strangers in case they are angels. I'd say this Hebrew audience thought to themselves, oh snap, I wonder if I've been inhospitable to an angel lately. As a church family, we don't have to wonder 
what we are supposed to do about strangers. We are to show them hospitality. And let me share something else that's really a big key to this whole thing. Hospitality is not an emotion. You don't necessarily need to feel anything to show hospitality. You don't have to feel loving feelings to open doors to strangers. Hospitality is simple because it's pure action. Are you tracking the thing? You may not be able to conjure up brotherly love for strangers, but you can show them hospitality. You can show them open doors, open arms, open circles. You can do something to help them feel welcome, say something, listen to their story, pray with them, maybe even help meet a need when that's appropriate. You can show hospitality to strangers. I mentioned open circles. What do I mean by that? Open circles. Have you ever seen a group of guys or gals at church standing around talking in a closed circle? Happens all the time. Okay, listen. Don't do that. Keep your circle open instead. Make it a semicircle. Always keep a spot open. I'm serious. Look to the person nearby who is by herself. Maybe even call her over. Or if needed, leave the circle to go talk to that person and start a new circle. But definitely keep it open. Literally. For a better church family, open doors to strangers. By the way, I just have to stop here and thank God for our hospitality team. Tamara Miller and our team do a great job setting up and tearing down and preparing and ordering things and always having wonderful coffee and snacks area. Uh, it's a snack area, and they, they definitely add a lot to the feeling of hospitality that happens here at Go Church. Sometimes people are surprised that we provide um, fresh roasted uh, coffee, even sweet treats, free of charge without any tip jar or any kind of place to make donations. Well, this is why. This is why. We want to show hospitality, not only to the brethren, but to strangers who walk in the door, especially them. I should also shout out to our connections team as well, led by Bevan and Joyce. Recently, we upgraded our gift bags. Don't tell anybody. But they now include a $5 gift card to a local coffee shop. Why? Because we want to show hospitality to strangers. And the church curmudgeon says, well, I don't think that's good stewardship. My response, wrong. <laughs> All these things are great ways to spend our money because the coffee and snack area as well as the gift bags help enable love of the brethren and hospitality to strangers all at once. You might even want to do other things. I have some ideas. All right, our sixth principle is this. For a better family, remember the persecuted. I think I inhaled shaving cream earlier. <laughs> Excuse me. Remember the persecuted. We get this from verse 3, which says, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Now from that last phrase, we can see that this is definitely specifically about fellow believers. Those who are also part of the body in Christ. Yet another term for the church. 
Those who have been persecuted for their faith to the point of prison. That's what we're talking about. Understand the historical context. Jewish leaders had been given authority to put professing Christians, particularly those with a Hebrew background, into prison. By the way, they were often, if not always, also beaten as a part of their punishment. You may remember this all started with Saul, who later was renamed Paul upon his conversion. He and probably other zealous uh, Jews like him were set out even as far as Damascus, Syria, and they were putting Jewish converts to Christianity into prison. As Luke describes it, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Apparently, this had been going on for a while at the time of the writing of Hebrews, and it would appear that although this particular church and the audience of the letter um, may not have had its own members going to prison yet, the author wants them to remember that the larger church family is still being heavily persecuted, especially in places like Jerusalem. Now, look back at Hebrews 13.3 and think about how this applies to us. Even though there is some relatively minor persecution against believers today uh, locally and regionally, we know that in the American church, uh, ours is nothing compared to what has been going on in the global church, and we really need to do a better job of remembering our more severely persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. I really believe that God has something to say to us on this, go church. I believe the Lord is saying that we are not to remain oblivious while people in our own extended family are being persecuted, thrown into prison, and even killed, there is something for us to do. Look at what it says in verse 3. First, we are told to remember. Remember who? The prisoners and the ill-treated. Which ones? The ones that are part of the body of Christ in particular. And the clear inference is that they are in prison for their belief in Him. We cannot continue to allow ourselves to be blind to these members of our spiritual family who are being persecuted for their faith. We must at least remember them. Another word that works with remembrance is awareness. We cannot remember if we are not aware. I really think many of us need to work on this. We need to make ourselves more aware of what is going on. I have found that most Christians in America live in denial. We are ostriches about the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world. The situation with ISIS forced us to see more because it made national news. Um, but then COVID took our attention, and ever since then, uh, we haven't been in tune, I'm afraid, how quickly we forget. And folks, the work of a group like ISIS or some other specific group you may have heard of through mainstream media represents a small sliver of the global persecution of Christians that goes on every single day. No other world religion faces a fraction of the persecution that Christianity endures. An interesting fact in itself. But folks, Hebrews 13.3 needs to mean something for us right here today. This is for you. This is a command. God says, remember the persecuted church. This is important. A better family remembers those who are persecuted. Notice also the command to empathize. The author says, remember them as if you were there in prison with them. Wow. Really? How far is that from closing our eyes to the truth? We are to think of those being persecuted as if we were there with them. We are to empathize with all those who face prison and ill treatment for their faith in Christ. Remember that family 
down in Oregon who was fined out of business, lost it all for not baking a cake for a certain couple because of their Christian convictions about marriage. The media wants to belittle them now because they got some donations to help cover the fact that their business was destroyed by an oppressive government. Christians around the country cared enough to try to help these folks out. And I say, that's awesome. That is exactly the way it should be. Why? Because we're a family. Because we're a family. We are a family. If you mess with one of us, <laughs> you mess with us all. Now, am I saying we should fight back like some family of seven brothers in an old Western? No. I just said, if you mess with one of us, you mess with us all. I'm not spe uh, specifically addressing appropriate uh, and inappropriate responses to persecution in this message. What I am saying is that we are all in this together. And we are not to sit idly by with our heads in the sand while members of our family get attacked. Instead, we're to remember them. And we are to empathize as if we were the ones going through it. And see, remembering and empathizing will drive us to pray for them and to help them in any way we can because, folks, that's what better families do. Now, back to awareness for a minute. How do you become aware? I mean, I, I can't preach about it every Sunday. How, how do you become aware? Well, there are several great organizations devoted to helping us know what is going on around the world when it comes to the persecution of Christians. The best resource I know of on this topic is a group called Voice of the Martyrs. It's a good one. Their website is simply persecution.com. Can you remember that? Persecution.com. You can also sign up for a regular newsletter from them, but you better fasten your seatbelt and get out the tissue because it's rough stuff. If you're not already aware, you're going to be blown away by what's going on around us, going around in the world every day. And folks, if you're not aware and you're not regularly thinking about and praying for these extended family members who are suffering, today's scripture ought to bring some conviction. You may need to take action based on the admonition from today's message. The Word of God says you should remember these folks as if you were there with them. A better family remembers the persecuted. We need to remember. On the screen is a picture of Mission Aviation Fellowship's Ryan Koher, along with his young family. Ryan and two South African volunteers have been detained since November 4th in Mozambique. False charges have been leveled, but in reality, they are in prison for their work as Christian missionaries. Angela Mueller, there in the back, one of our newest members uh, here, has been friends with Ryan's wife, Annabelle for decades, so the Mueller's are very close to the situation. Because of this, through their Go group and through our prayer ministry team, um, many of us have been praying for Ryan. I'd like to ask all of you to pray. Let's bring this young man and these other two workers home. They got, last I heard, they got some bad news this week. There was a court date and it didn't go well. They were denied bail. There was some hope there and it was dashed. Put it at the top of your list. And you, if you don't have a list, get a list. 
intercessory prayer. And join our prayer ministry team for that matter. Just email. Just the email's in the, in the thing. It's just you get an email and you pray. Can you, can you do that? Okay, let, let Joyce know. You email me, I'll email her, or the prayer ministry team email address is right there in your bulletin. We need to be praying for this. Some of us have been. Let's all, can we, can we pray for Ryan? Bring him home? Can, just, okay. Please do. Can you imagine? Can you? Look at that family. Well, you should imagine. Remember, as if you were there in prison with this brother in Christ. That's what the Bible says. And folks, that's just one story. Thousands are in prison and thousands are even killed for their faith in Christ each and every year. No one knows how many are in prison, but a conservative number of those who are murdered because they will not deny Christ, that is the most narrow definition of a martyr, is more than a thousand per year. Numbers of, you know, where it's like a war or something are much, much higher. But I'm talking about people who literally are documented to having died because they wouldn't deny Christ. Just that. More than a thousand a year. Some say way more. It's a fact. It's a fact. We need to wake up. Go to the website I told you about, persecution.com. Educate yourself with the truth so that you can remember. Many believe global persecution of Christians is at an all-time high. Are you remembering the persecuted as if you were suffering with them? I'll say it again also, that a more serious kind of persecution is coming to the American church. We're going to need each other more and more as a church family going forward. We need to share our stories with each other and pray for each other. Some of you have lost jobs because of your Christian faith. It's real. We're going to need to rely on each other. We need to remember each other. We need to stick together, you know? We are a better family in the church, but down the road we're going to need to be a better and better family. If you understand what I'm saying, let's start now. By continuing in love, opening doors to strangers, and by remembering the persecuted. Next week, we'll get into some principles that not only affect our church family, but our natural families as well. You don't want to miss mes the message next week, unless you have a perfect marriage, I guess. Anybody? Okay, then you need to be here. There are going to be some, some very practical things next week. Don't miss. Would you pray with me? Father, this has certainly been a message to believers today, but we also know that and hope and pray that there are those here who are still kicking the tires, who maybe just came curious, who aren't sure. But I believe that you work in our lives and that usually when a person gets to that point of taking the step to show up in a church, that you're already working. And so you've been drawing that person, and you got them here today. And so I pray for the folks in the room that maybe haven't ever joined the family of God by simply surrendering to Jesus Christ and trusting in Him and His power to save them. I find a lot of people just don't quite know what to do. So listen to me as I'm praying right now. I'm just, 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 all you have to do is respond to what God has already done with faith.
Why isn't that simple? Because He did the work. He has already provided. It's available, but not automatic. It's available, but not automatic. You need to respond. He said, we got to have faith. you got to put your trust in Him. In the same book we've just been studying, it says that those who come to God have to believe that He exists and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. In context, He rewards them with salvation if they come. Will you come to Jesus today? He's waiting. He's waiting for you to respond. He's already died for you. He already thought of you. He already gave His life for you. He's already risen again to show that He can come through on His promise that you can rise again whenever that day comes. But first you have to respond. You have to say yes. You have to receive. Can you put your trust in Jesus today? Can you just throw it all in on Him? He wants to save you. He loves you. It doesn't matter how good you've been or how bad you've been. What matters is He died on the cross to pay for whether it's one sin or millions of sins. He died for you, and you can receive His forgiveness today by simply putting your trust in Him. Just, just tell Him. Just tell Him, yes, I need Jesus. Come into my life. Save me. Help me learn to follow you. I surrender. Jesus, save me. Just save me from my sin and my sinfulness. Save me. We have an enemy that doesn't want us to believe it can be that simple, but it really, really is. Because God's word says he finishes the work he starts. You just have to respond and he does the rest. If you told him that today, if you surrendered today, he does the rest. Father, thank you for saving me. Even when I was six years old and I came to understand that I had sin that needed to be forgiven even as a six-year-old, that I knew there was something dark in me, something wrong, something not okay. And I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior and receive the peace that comes from knowing I'm forgiven. Maybe today's the day for someone. Maybe instead of six years old, they're 60. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I pray for those that have made that decision recently or today that you would, would indeed complete the work. You've provided a church right here for them to help. Please let them understand that we want to help. That they'll let us know and we can help them with next steps. Thank you for all that you do among us. Thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.